Welcome to season two of the Napapa Coffee House, brought to you by the generous support from our sponsors. I'm Priya Parandare, and I'm the executive director of Napapa. This season, Napapa Coffee House conversations focus on how AANHPI leaders, especially women, have reached positions of prominence across various industries. This season is hosted by legal legend and trailblazer, Deborah Wong Yang. Today, she continues the discussion with Janet Yang, the president of the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences. You may know them as the folks who hand out the Oscars. Janet is the first Asian American to lead the prestigious Academy and only the fourth woman and second person of color to do so. It is so incredible to feature Janet's path to leading an organization of 10,500 film industry artists and leaders. It is fascinating how Janet got involved in the movie business in the 1980s when she was tasked with simultaneously opening up China to Hollywood and bringing Chinese cinema to the United States. Deb and Janet not only talk about career trajectories, but they spend some time discussing a film I personally love, The Joy Luck Club. We're not just speaking about AANHPI lawyers and talking about the law but other ways AA and HPI leaders are advancing visibility across all walks of society. So get that Java out and stay tuned for another captivating look at how AA and HPI leaders continue to carve out pathways for our community. Cheers. Janet Yang, welcome today. It's so wonderful to have you with us. I'm excited to have you because you're a dear friend, but also because you're somebody that everybody knows and who's been out there in the world doing amazing things. We have tons to talk about today. We want to talk about things that you've accomplished and the differences that you've made in your field. Um, and before I get to the pinnacle of being the president of the Academy and your amazing career in filmmaking, I kind of want to start at the beginning to just give our listeners some sense of who you are and how you sort of got into it, because you were really one of the you know early folks who started to change things up in Hollywood. But what was your background and what inspired you to actually pursue a career in Hollywood? Because that's that wasn't the norm back then. It was not the norm back then, and it was certainly not something I imagined I could be doing when I was growing up, which I did in a town on Long Island, a Jewish community. We were the only Asian family. New York seemed, you know, eons away from California at the time. Went to school on the East Coast. None of it really intersected with Hollywood in any way, except for the fact that after college, I went to live in China. I had visited during my high school years when Nixon and Kissinger suddenly opened it up. My parents are from China. They intended to just get graduate degrees here and then move back to China. Then everything changed. They decided to settle here. My mother worked the United Nations. We would take home leave every other year, but that was just to Hong Kong and Taiwan because that was what was recognized as China. And so suddenly in 1972, unexpectedly, because my parents at that time had never imagined they could also visit China again. It was so closed off, it was so distant, but suddenly we were able to go. And that one trip, that one three week trip where I met tons of my relatives really did spark something in me, mostly just intense curiosity about my parents' background, 
you know, it was a kind of sliding doors moment because they kept, my parents kept thinking about moving back to China. So I could have been raised in China. I would have been a red guard probably. And, you know, it was that generation. And I just couldn't stop thinking about, whoa, this is, and you know, meeting my first cousins and aunts and uncles for the first time in my life, not having met any of them, just kind of was a, was blew my mind, you know, and I thought, I just need to know more. I was also fascinated by the country being in every way so different from the one I grew up in. It was, you know, obviously with the, the, I felt the ancientness of it, the, its history. I felt how different it was very poor at the time. And I just couldn't, and, you know, and it was they were very communist. It was the middle of the cultural revolution, but I found it all fascinating in every way. So I went to live there. I studied Chinese studies in college. I went to live there after college. Now we're in the early eighties. And I found myself really drawn to Asia, you know, the people that I met there that were writers and artists and musicians and filmmakers. And I never had the opportunity to talk to people like that who look like me. I, I, they just didn't exist in my orbit for some reason. There were very few, I think, from our community who aspired to that at the time or so it seemed. And I found myself so drawn to this circle of people. And then particularly at watching films and television shows with people who looked like me, which I never ever saw growing up and didn't know what I was missing until I saw it. So how I perceived people of our race changed. And I thought, well, if, it's, if I had all these unconscious biases, as we like to say now, though that vocabulary didn't exist at the time, other people probably do. So all I could think when I left that year and a half experience was I want to show these films to non-Chinese. I thought they were very beautiful, very interesting. And I really admired the filmmakers who made them. And I wanted to kind of open up people's eyes to the fact that there was cinema in China. I had always loved films. Again, never thought I could work in the film industry. So I came back and I was getting my business degree at Columbia because I didn't know what else to do that felt you know, appropriate because <laughs> that, that time in China did not lead to any career moves at the time. And I started having these film festivals or film screenings, like privately, just through friends and networks. And then there was, when I used to go to the Chinese consulate on 12th Avenue and 42nd Street, carrying these heavy 35 millimeter prints to whatever screening room, I would bump into other people who were interested in borrowing the same. And then I met a, uh, some people who were working for a company in San Francisco and they wanted to expand. They wanted to become a distributor of Chinese cinema. They had a theater, they were refurbishing. It is the World Theater, which is in San Francisco on Broadway in Stockton, now China Live, a big, a big building. And after graduating from business school, I was hired to run that company, which was the first real job I had and the only job I was interested in and felt qualified for. So then I had the official role of flying back and forth to China, choosing Chinese films, taking filmmakers and delegations to international film festivals, Met so many wonderful people then, people who became giants in the industry like Tom Luddy, RIP, you know, Jeff Gilmore, Richard Pena. They were all interested in Chinese cinema. So I was happy as a clam because I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. And then I got a call from someone at Universal Studios who heard what I was doing and he wanted to open up the China market for American films. So I then found myself moving to Los Angeles 
working at Universal Studios and representing several of the studios, again, flying back and forth to China, going through the libraries of Universal, Paramount, MGM, UA, and bringing, picking films to take to China for distribution, including taking Gregory Peck and a retrospective of his works. And then while I'm doing that, I get a call, and I promise this will be over soon, but it's so important to know how I got in this. It all happened in quick succession. Then I got a call from Kathy Kennedy's office. She was the Steven Spielberg's producer, and she said, Steven wants to make a film in China. We, we, we heard you're like the only person, and I was, I mean, who was flying back and forth to China, working, you know, on behalf of the studios, and one thing led to another, and I was suddenly immersed in a production of Stephen's Empire of the Sun. So this all happened in the like early mid into the late 80s. So it just, and that's, that's, and then after that, which was a wonderful experience, and it was a time where US China were friendly and Bertolucci was making The Last Emperor in Beijing. I then, they asked me to be a production executive. So I did that for a while. And then in 1989, I went to, I joined Oliver Stone to form a company with him. And then I started producing on my own. So that, in a nutshell, is how I got into this. It all happened with zero planning on my part, zero knowledge of where anything was going to lead. Like I, you know, I literally had no idea what I was going to be when I grew up. But then once I was on a movie set, you know, once I got sparked first by the passion for using cinema as a as a perceptual, you know, tool. And understanding how deeply emotional the experience can be and how it opens up your mind and heart to different things. And then once I was on a movie set, like the path, then then I learned on the job what I wanted to do. It didn't, it didn't occur to me. It just never felt like it was in the realm of possibility for me growing up on Long Island to say, yeah, I want to be a film producer or whatever, you know, <laughs> be the president of the academy. It just couldn't even, you know be remotely on my radar. I, you know, Janet, one of the things is that, you know, back in the eighties and you would know better than anybody, you know, the world of cinema was very different in China than it is today. And it wasn't, it wasn't really at the same place as I understand it as where sort of American cinematography was. So it's not as if it was like a equal to equal it's very they were very different so the fact that you were sort of going into this you know this world in china and coming back into this world of you know of u.s uh, cinematography there's a marrying and a mixing that has some it has some faith and confidence coming from you because i think others might be deterred sometimes because that's not an easy path of trying to put that together what was going on with you at well, it was you know it it was i guess i've always had just a lot of curiosity so one of the things that we did when i was hired by by the studio consortium universal paramount mgm we did like a massive Kind of, I first went with my the, the person who hired me, and then they he, they sent me out on my own. <laughs> like, but we explored how movies were shown in China, and often in the countryside. Like the the Chinese Film Bureau was trying to prove to us this isn't a money making proposition for us. So we went to the countryside and we saw lots of people, you know, in, living in the countryside who would bring a brick to sit in a field and watch a movie hanging on a sheet from both sides and they might pay with an egg. So, you know, and then when I when I lived in Beijing in the early 80s, I was working at a work unit 
you know, about once a week or once every two weeks, they would say, hey, guess what, everyone, we're going to the movies and they would just give out tickets. So it really was part of the quote unquote propaganda machine or the publicity machine or whatever you want to call it because now they use both words. So it was, in other words, just something that everybody did as part of their education in a way. It was like, let's go see a movie and let's talk about it. And I kind of, I appreciated that because it was, you can, you know, whatever you might have thought of the movies, it was something, it was a shared experience. And I yeah. think that in the end is what everybody relishes about theatrical movie going, which is such a big topic right now here, right here and in, in all over the world, actually, but particularly here in Hollywood is that that theatrical experience of going together. And I remember, you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it there and then and here and now <laughs> as much as ever. And love the idea that people are rediscovering that through Barbenheimer or whatever. But but back then it was, you know, it was just, wow, it was really thinking about film as entertainment, but also as a community gathering thing, as a way to change people's perceptions, as a way to influence people. And I think it would be naive for us to say that those aspects are, you know, not infused in every film. Like yeah. whatever you put out there, what you say, what you don't say, you know, how you represent people, characters, what kind of story you're telling, how you edit, how you shoot, all of it is deeply influential on our psyche and our, our emotional lives and on our perceptions of others. And so that's what's kept me going, frankly, you know, is that if it were just pure entertainment and people left without being changed, I'm not sure I would be as interested. I think people often do leave changed. Okay, let me fast forward, because as everybody knows, you're now the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I think you're only the second person of color and the fourth woman to hold this position. But, you know, it's a huge position. And in Los Angeles and in the U.S., it's really a huge position, which is fantastic. But what are some of the things that you hope to accomplish, you know, in this role now? Because it's an amazing opportunity. And also one with a lot of responsibility too, aside from all the things you have to do. <laughs> yeah. I I really relish a lot of, you know, what I'm able to do as the president, just as a way to kind of set a tone. I feel like our industry is clearly at an inflection point. And I like to remind people that we are so damn lucky to do what we do. And I think most people feel this most of the time. Right now, things are very troubled and there are you know, a lot of conflicts and resentment and the, the, the industry has definitely changed quite a bit in recent years. And I hope to God that we're all able to come to the table. I, I personally and the Academy in general cannot get engaged in any labor disputes. It would go against our charter and bylaws, but, but, you know, I'm really hoping that people will find a way that, you know, I, again, I have to remain incredibly neutral about uh, the specifics of the strikes, but beyond that, you know, there are, you know, there, there really are big issues. I think in the past, it was just about money. They could maybe compromise, but, you know, now there's bigger issues on the table, AI and, and just the, the data-driven companies and how, 
artists can share. So I'm just, I'm not making a, an opinion or a judgment. I'm just saying those are the issues on the table, which anybody who's reading the news would know. And I like to think that the Academy is a way to remind people that we, we work together. I mean, I'm very proud that our branch, we have, we have 18 branches now and almost all of them are behind the camera. You know, we, we obviously have directors, writers, and actors. In fact, we only have one branch that's in front of the camera, actors. Everybody else is behind the camera and doing the hard work. And so the overwhelming majority of our membership are people who are toiling without the big credits, you know, the main, they're, they're getting, you know, directors get more glory and writers make some more, some producers a little bit, but then there's a host of other crafts, wonderful crafts people who we all work together. And this, the, the communal nature and the collaborative nature of what we do, I think is a great model for how the world should work. I used to play in an orchestra and it reminds me a little bit of that same thing. It's not about any individual instrument. It's like how people come together to create a greater whole. And I guess I'm just that idealistic enough to think that this is a model and it, and everybody has to be treated fairly and with respect and, you know, and, and we really relish this collaboration and we know that we can't do anything alone. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, I love your analogy to an orchestra. I think it's apt in so many different kinds of situations, actually. You know, my daughter was a viola player and you don't get to Me carry too. the melody. I have big hands. I have large hands. And so I start on violin. They're like, we're putting a viola. And then I immediately jumped many I immediately became first violist because that's, this that's what should happen to her too that's so funny <laughs> but I used to always say to her you know it's so weird to read your music because it's not the it's not the melody not the melody you, right and she would say mom as she says I get that she says but this is such an important part because without the viola you don't hear all the other sounds in the same kind exactly. of way and this it's exactly. exactly what you're saying about the orchestra which I think is really sort of apt to what's going on you know in a lot of different places right now where we're really trying to build some consensus where where that's been difficult you know in in okay. recent times let me ask you this you know are there things you know in what we've been talking about with the the listeners up until now is really sort of you know how folks have had bravery or how they've overcome adversity because there's lots of different situations that you know they'll find themselves in over the course of their career or their personal lives but you know can you reflect is there a moment that stands out in your mind you know where you had a particular triumph when you had a difficult situation or some sort of adversity that you were you know you were up against some might say that the entire career of those of us who start out oh. early something is an adversity but I don't know if there's a particular thing that pops into mind well every film that gets made is a miracle yeah. it, it is a truly a miracle so many things need to align that when they do you're like how did this <laughs> you almost can't believe it because so often you're putting together you get the director and the or the cast or the the financing falls out or then the cast drops or the time and then that or the scripts not right the the or the location drop whatever there's so many things that have to align and so i think every movie is a miracle i truly do everything the the, the bringing all the right people together 
then not just the getting it made, then if it actually is a, is a good movie that people enjoy, that's a whole other miracle. <laughs> you know, the music, there's so many disparate pieces that come together. And that's part of the magic is to see how each person and each craft makes such a big contribution. So I guess people now associate me more than any other movie with the Joy Luck Club. And that one was a super miracle <laughs> because it just defied every rule. I mean, the first being there are virtually no white people in it. Okay, that just didn't happen back then. And especially in all Asian cast, you know, there were some black movies that were being made at the time, but virtually none within all Asian cast, except a few indie movies like Wayne Wang did, Chan is Missing, and there were a few others here and there that were great. But this was a studio movie, so I think it was, except for also Flower Drum Song, which I just working on doing a contemporary version of, and that came out in the late, in the early 60s, the play was the late 50s, so that was also incredible. So you'd see these outliers, so there's that, and then 30 years passed, <laughs> whatever, and then there's, it, it was actually very interesting, it was about 30 years between Flower Drum Song and Joy Luck Club, and then another 25 between Joy Luck Club and Crazy Rich Asians. So there are these landmarks, you just wait decades and decades. But to, to hear that people still remember and say that it changed their lives is incredibly gratifying. But besides it being all Asian cast, it had a lot of Mandarin Chinese in it. It had a lot of flashbacks. That's supposed to be a no-no at the time. Subtitles were a no-no. Everything was a no-no. <laughs> like somehow no, no became yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know. It just was a, you know, it was one person, Jeffrey Katzenberg and, and that person who greenlights movies. And I can talk for half an hour just about that because so far no Asians and no, no people of color. It's pretty much all white men who write those checks have green light power, but it took that one Jeffrey Kassenberg to green light the Joyla Club. I give him all the credit. He supported the making of the movie and, you know, and I think really benefited from this whole studio benefited from it. And, but it's risky because it doesn't, if you, you know, and what's happening today is there's a, as an, in my opinion, over-reliance on algorithms because algorithms can be helpful if you just want the information of what has done well in the past but it should not be prescriptive because the whole point is that we as a human species want change. We are always changing. We want something fresh. We may not want a radical change. Like I, I've actually had to analyze creativity for, for someone once. And it's usually a combination of something that's familiar and something that's different. So you want, you don't want people to feel totally out of body with watching something so different that they don't have any reference points, but if it's something that feels somewhat familiar, but then has twists and surprises mm -hmm. that keeps them curious. You, you want to just keep going like, oh, this is interesting. I think D D uh, David Chang of Momofuku had one of the best descriptions. He says when he has a recipe that is really successful, the first utterance from the, the person eating is like, it's like a familiar thing, but then they're like, it's like they keep eating going, this is delicious, but it's a little different. What is it that makes it different? How is it? Blah, 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 blah. So I think that's what people are always looking for. Like you're not out of your comfort zone entirely, but you're not so comfortable that you're just 
kind of get very complacent. Like you want to stay stimulated, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, lo- I love that thought. You know, one of the things, Janet, is I know that you've been very focused about throughout your career about, you know, looking at works and film and being inclusive and having inclusion, being sensitive to marginalized communities. I know some of that stuff you've done through your production work, but, you know, how do you weave that in? Because, you know, as you were saying, it's just not all commercial. It's not easily translatable, you know, but they're important things. I'm sure there are things that you see and that you feel very deeply that the rest of us are experiencing that you're trying to deal with all the way to, you know, and this is, this comes from me, this is my question, all the way to, you know, as you know, I've long been fighting for civil rights, you know, here in this country for all, but one of the things is always that it's hard to change someone's image of another person. And if you really want to lessen and eradicate some of like hate crimes and things like that, they need to understand who that person is. And I've always said the the easiest way to do that is to do it in the media. So what is happening right now and that you and others have created, I cannot tell you from the legal side of it, how joyful we are and how that's really allowed us to do some other kinds of work. But, you know, how does that I'm work? Hearing that. I'm not sure how it's affected you, but I love hearing it. What's what's an example if you make? Um, I hadn't well, I mean, I think that... Is- Affected. Yeah, I mean, let's use a perfect example of crazy rich Asians, right? And so all of a sudden, there's this image of not just the immigrant, right? Of not just the nerdy Got kid, it. right? There's a whole different kind of image, which yeah. lets people's minds see and extend much more broadly as okay. to what being you know, Asian American is. And then that lets us fit some of our work into that dialogue because people are seeing the community in a much broader way. Some of the work that you're doing that I know you were instrumental and in helped start, you know, Gold House, right? But some of the work that Gold House is doing and, you know, you know, we have some of the folks who've been involved in that, you know, on another podcast, but some of the things that they've been doing in opportunities, but putting more Asians on the screen. Right. Yeah. So it's okay. I get it. Of course. Yeah. That, right. Yeah. It's it's helping us. And so talk about some of that work. Well, it's what I said from the very beginning. I know it does change people's perceptions, and it's again, it's what continues to motivate me. I I you know, and it's not quantifiable. So so some people may not recognize that it does it's soft power we we call it right so it's frustrating sometimes because there could be a just dismissal of you know the impact that a piece of work has but i think when those of us who work in creative fields recognize the power of it we have to we have to you know it's a weird combination of expressing one's own it's like when when i choose what i want to work on or not it i it has to resonate with me first right that's the only thing that's going to keep me going but i also have to believe it will resonate therefore with others so it's a funny process because it's not like again it's not quantifiable it's not like we're going to go out and figure out what everybody wants, and we're going to make that. I don't think that works very well. I think it has to resonate personally. And and so we have to feel it. We have to feel like this is something that moves me, and I therefore I think it will move others. And when I was talking about that 
the combination of familiar and refreshing, I think it's it's been so interesting to watch. For instance, Crazy Rich Asians took a very standard genre of a rom-com, which hadn't been popped for a while, but it cast Asians. That was the surprising part. And it took us to Singapore, right? And that made all the difference. So that was the part. And people could learn about cultures. Most people are curious. Most people want to learn something. You know, I'm reveling in the fact that both Barbie and Oppenheimer are very smart films. And what I should probably not say anymore, because again, I have to remain very neutral about any film that's nominated. I'm just talking about the phenomenon of these two films being so unique in their own right. And, and people are clamoring for films like this. And that makes me very happy. So it's been, it's been, it's been a very weird time because we have such good news and then such not good news. And it's hard to reconcile it all. And, and nobody really knows where it's going and how long this will last. But the point is that there's, a, you know, there's there's something about people coming together. And I think people crave that experience. Taylor Swift is in town, as you know. So people love gathering. They love being in, in that environment and having the shared experience again. And I think that's what we're seeing these days at the theater, which makes me super happy. Well, it's funny you said that because I went on Friday to Taylor Swift and my of three- Of course you did, Deb. Did you bring, who did you go with? I went with my three daughters, but and I went, you know, in all pink because they told me I had to get into the moment. But right before we walked into SoFi Stadium, my middle daughter turned around to me and she put her arms on my shoulders and she said, you know, she's nine inches taller than I am, but she said, <laughs> mommy, do you understand that you're about to experience something? And I was like, what? She said, this is a phenomenon. You're about to experience something. So no iPhone, no talking. She says, I just want you to be in the moment and experience it. It was really sweet because it, it really did sort of flip a, flip a mental switch for me. And when I got inside, she's a thousand percent correct. Right. But I do feel that energy of people. I think maybe it might be a post-COVID thing, but I also think some of the stuff that's going on in the entertainment, and I'm an outsider, right? But some of the stuff that's going on in the entertainment business, a lot of it has to do with the, the nature of things, that there's so many platforms now, there's so many places where you can get content. And it's been like all over the place. I jokingly tell my children that when I first watched TV, there were three stations and that there were antenna ears in order to get the signal, right? And so the idea that they can get whatever they want, whenever they want, is such a joy and luxury. But I think there's like a, there's some of that trying to figure itself and align itself. Um, Completely. I mean, some would say there's an oversaturation of content and yeah. so it's really hard, you know, and I noticed it when it happened in the music industry, when suddenly you could get any song from anyone at any time, you know, it was the, the days of like getting that special record or then the CD or whatever, where you had to actually, there was a process to actually play it other than just like hitting a button on your phone, you know, and, and this is what the newer generations are having, or this is the world they're coming into and they're going to have to adapt and I see some counter activity, like people going to bookstores or wanting something intimate or, you know, I, I, I have to believe I'm generally an optimist about the human condition. And I feel like we're always making corrections. So, and, you know, the whole 
the whole topic of AI will inevitably be entering a lot of people's conversations. And we don't know, but I, 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 I remain curious. I remain open and I remain curious. It's really hard for me to land on a hard point of view because I think so much is uncertain. And, you know, we, we, we all have to do what we believe is right in the moment and have our best intentions, yeah. you know. Well, one quick question, because some of us, you know, went and saw Joyride. Um, and as I understand it, it was actually a, a more daring name. And somebody said, somebody told me that it had some play off of the Joy Luck Club. It did. It was Joy Club. It was, oh. that was the working, that was the working title, uh, Joy Club. I'm, I can't say that dirty four-letter word, but it was, I remember Adele said, I just have to ask you, what do you think? And I was like, sounds okay to me. And then actually there were some people in the mix from the original movie, I don't need to mention names, who didn't like the idea. And then after they saw the movie, they're like, what we're thinking. The point is it probably would have never gotten approved. So it's more just a theoretical thing, but that's what they were referring to. And at the Gold House Scala earlier, this was this year or last year now, I've lost track of time. When was it? Last year. Yeah, last, this year or last year? Goldhouse Gala. Anyway, it was so lovely because the cast of Joyride presented whatever legacy award to the cast of, of Joy Luck Club. And it was just so nice to gather these two groups of incredible actors. And yeah, it was it was a lot well, of fun. I have to tell you that it was a joy to see the Academy, I mean, the Oscars this year with you on the stage and in such prominence, but then, you know, all of the 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 victories, including the end with, you know, everything everywhere all at once. Pretty uh, historic, wasn't it? It was <laughs> really amazing. And so my last question to you is, you know, sort of like, you know, that's been wonderful. So, you know, the kinds of things that, you know, you're thinking of aside from, you know, aside from the everyday work of what it is that you're doing, which I know is busy, but, you know, as you're listening to these diverse voices and trying to create, you know, creative projects, you know, what does that look like going forward for, for you? It looks like a lot of parceling of time. I, you know, I have had to learn. It's so funny. I was just at this other big dinner last night with a lot of Asian women's founders and people working in the industry, whatever. And it was all about wellness. Like we, they did, it was another gold women's thing. And it was all about wellness. I was definitely the oldest person there because I could really sympathize with these women in their forties who have young children at home, who are maybe parents who are not well, then their big careers. And like, and I remember that, that feeling of like, no matter what you're doing there, you feel guilty for not doing something. You're not taking enough time for yourself. You're not taking enough time for yourself. And fortunately I've kind of moved past that. And there's a certain calm that comes when you're, first of all, okay with not pleasing every single person. You're okay. You just let things go more easily. Hopefully you feel this in your life too. And it's just a, it's very interesting. Did I go off topic? Cause now I forgot what the question was, but what was the no, question? Sort of where are we going? Oh, from how now? do I, how do I, so, so a lot of people said, oh my God, how did you do this job and blah, blah, blah. It's definitely extremely time consuming. There's there's 18 branches, nine committees. I basically have to sit in every one of those meetings. And there's a whole bunch of other things. You know, we have governor's awards. We have in memoriam. We have so many. So it it is a lot of time, 
But at no point, and this is why I don't feel stressed or psychically worn down, at no point did I ever feel like I couldn't be myself. Like I felt like I, I don't have to conform. I have, we have a wonderful CEO, Bill Kramer, who's also very upbeat. And we, we, you know, we, sh we have a lot of the same instincts. So there's, you know, I don't feel like my time is wasted and I don't feel like I have to be someone other than myself. And I think those are the two big stressors. Like I, you know, I, I know people who work for large corporations who just feel like they, can't truly be themselves. They, there's a party line or whatever, you know, it was just not for me because one thing that I think contributes to my well-being is that I don't really have to answer to a person, you know, I don't, there's not a, I don't have this thing above my head. It's like I bow to that, that thing, that company, you know, mission or, you know, the organization is is of course something that we want to uphold, but it so aligns with what my beliefs are anyway. So it's not a, it's no conflict. And yeah, and then I do make time. I insist on making time for my other projects. It looks like one of them is going. It's a, oh. I can't say too much about it, but unfortunately, it does not require. It's it's a it's actually a documentary with some amazing filmmakers that you've heard of but I can't talk about it. And I don't, it, it, most of my work is done until post-production. I'm not part of the production intensely per se. So, you know, so it's struggling. It's sort of like, I, uh, did you feel this way before you had kids? Or maybe when you contemplate your second and third, it's like, how am I going to fit a kid into my schedule? And it just works out. Like, you don't, it doesn't seem like it will when you're thinking about it in the abstract, it just works out. So you just, I just take it day at a time. It's some days are rougher than others. <laughs> There's a lot of travel involved and, you know, but it, it just works out somehow. Well, I, we want to thank you on behalf of the community oh. for everything that you're doing. It was great to see you. And I hope to see you, you know, off camera sometime soon, but really appreciate your giving your time and, and your thank time. Thank you. Good luck and hello and goodbye to all the Napaba members. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Napaba Coffee House. We appreciate your time and support. We extend a heartfelt thank you to our incredible sponsors, Cooley LLP, Gibson Dunn, and PepsiCo for making this episode possible. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider subscribing, leaving a review or comment, and sharing it with your friends. We love hearing from you, so feel free to connect with us on social media or through our website, www.napaba.org. Until next time, keep brewing curiosity.